Welcome back, Missio family. Today, you'll hear Pastor Josh wrap up on the rest of the story on Job. If you have any questions about Missio, you'd like to join a missional community, or you have any prayer requests, please contact us at missio.life. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, so glad to have you with us. And just for the record, I will not be hosting a puppy bowl party at my house. So no matter what Austin says, it's at his house, not my house. Um, but there is a big game going on today, right? Any, uh, who's going for 49ers? Oh, I see a 49ers guy right here. Yeah, how about uh, Chiefs, Chiefs Nation? Oh, and less of those in here. All right. So uh, it's a big day for football, obviously a big day for us too as a church. We're finishing up the book of Job. We're finishing up our series, and we've been talking a lot about themes like God's sovereignty and, and like suffering and why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering in the world? And this is a theme that we've been wrestling through as we've been talking about the story of Job. And so if you haven't been with us, I want to just bring you up to speed real quick because we're about to get to the very best part of the story and I want you to appreciate where we've been. So the, the, the story of Job, Job was a guy who lived a long time ago Loved God, feared him, worshipped him, um, had a lot of land, had a lot of cattle, sheep, and livestock, just like huge operation, super wealthy guy, had uh, 10 children, and just a big family business. And uh, one day, Satan came before God and said, hey, that guy Job is only good because you've blessed his socks off. That's the only reason that he worships you so much is because you've blessed him. So let me hurt him and let's see what happens. And God says, okay. And so he gives uh, Satan permission to harm Job, to afflict him. And so Job loses all of his livestock. Raiders take everything away, kill his servants. And his 10 children die in an accident. So they're gone. He's lost everything. Then his health goes in the toilet and he's got boils from head to toe. And he's sitting in the ashes and he's mourning. And, he's, and he, yet he still praises God. His three friends come to visit, and they're supposed to be comforting him, and yet they come, and they, after seven days of actually doing good at comforting, then they start talking, and they start accusing Job, and they start trying to fix his problems and figure out why his life is in ruins. Because they have a mindset that, hey, Job, buddy, if you're suffering, you did something wrong. Like there's a perfectly logical explanation for why your life is a mess, and it's you. Like that's basically what the friends told Job. Now there is a fourth friend that we didn't talk too much about. His name is Elihu. I will reference him at the end of the story, uh, but he came later, and he, he didn't speak up right away. He let the other three friends talk first because they were older, and he showed respect to them. Um, but these four friends spend 30-some chapters of the book of Job dialoguing, like back and forth and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And so that's what's been going on up until this point. Today, God speaks up. God enters the story, and this is the best part. Um, I don't want to make anyone feel old here, but does anyone remember Paul Harvey and the radio show, The Rest of the Story? You guys remember that? Like, yeah, I'm not the only one. This is him. I actually didn't know what he looked like. I had to look it up online. But because you just hear his voice. 
And he had this story and he would share like some super interesting story on the radio. And then at the end, he would drop like some nugget of like, it's so-and-so. And you're like, what? You know, you can't believe that it was, it was that person. So he drops this little twist at the end of the story. And you guys remember his tagline? And now you know the rest of the story. And he had this like way of inflecting his voice that he would do it. It was very endearing. And uh, that's Paul Harvey. He, he did that show from 76 until 2009. And so he, he always had that like best thing at the end. And that's kind of how the book of Job is. And now you're going to know the rest of the story of what happens with Job. And so God speaks. We're going to go to um, Job chapter 38. I'm going to be kind of hopscotching through a few chapters here. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to read some chunks. And we're going to see the interaction between God and Job. So Job 38 verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Okay, first of all, if God tells you to brace yourself like a man, I'm going to question you, like, all right, I got nothing. Uh, You know, I was going to say some things. I think I'm done now. Like, uh, that's where Job's at, because remember, he had asserted his innocence. He had said, I'm innocent. I'm being, this is happening not because I'm being punished. And I want to bring my case before God. And God says, okay, Job, now's your chance. Brace yourself like a man. I've got a few questions for you. Um, and, and we do this all the time, don't we, with people? We're like, in our mind, we think, I'm going I'm to come before this person, and I'm going to give them a piece of my mind, and I'm going to set the record straight. And like, we've played it all out in our mind, and then you get to the, the moment, and you're like sitting across from the person, and you're like, like super nice and like soften it up big time. Imagine doing that with God. Like you're ready to take God to task. And he says, brace yourself. And you're gonna see how Job responds here. Let's go on to verse four. He says, this is what God says to him. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sank together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's, there's a little bit of like sarcasm in there. You, you pick up on that? Like God's asking him questions. He's like, tell me again where you were when all this happened. And like, because you know so much. Um, and, and what can Job say to that? Where were you when I made the world? Oh, I didn't exist yet. I mean, I wasn't born yet, right? So he didn't really have much to say. So God silences Job by sharing his resume. Like God says, this is what I have done, Job. I created everything that you see, everything that exists, I made it. And by the way, where were you when all that happened? Next, God questions Job on his moral standards. Because again, Job had argued, I'm innocent, uh, I haven't done anything wrong. And so God says, okay, let's talk about morals. Job 40, verse 8 Will you discredit, this is God speaking, will you discredit my justice 
and condemn me just to prove that you are right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right, put on your glory and splendor, your honor and majesty. Give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. Humiliate the proud with a glance. Walk on the wicked where they stand. So not only has God created the world, engineered it, designed it, spoke it into being, he made it. He points that out to Job. Now he says, by the way, Job, I'm also the moral standard of the universe. Like you don't get to say what's just, what's fair and what's not fair. He he points that out, that God is the moral standard of the world. And basically by asking these questions of Job, he's revealing to him, Job, there are things that you don't know. There are things that you don't understand that are wonderfully complex that are just beyond your mind. And, and Job kind of picks up on this. He, he starts to figure it out. Um, one thing that I re- have wrestled with as I've read the book of Job, read it many times, and as I studied through it and really dug into it, I, asked, I had to ask myself, why is God like on Job's case right now? At the beginning, it says that Job's a righteous man, says that he fears God, he turns away from evil, right? So what's the deal? What did Job do that God is getting after him for now? Well, here's the thing. The Bible says that he was righteous doesn't mean he was perfect. Doesn't mean he was sinless. He was a righteous man, but he was not perfect. And really, Job's uh, demise was him arguing how innocent he was. He argued for 30-some chapters with these guys about how righteous he was and about how innocent he was, and he kind of lacked some humility. And that's really where God starts to peel back and get after Job and say, okay, so you know a lot, Job. Tell me this. Were you there? I don't think so. Do you know about like when, when the donkeys are, are out in the field and when the deer give birth? I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff. By the way, go read the whole book of Job. There are so many cool chapters there where he just lays it out, like the storehouses of heaven and snow and rain, and you're just like, whoa, God is so big and so good. But that's what he's saying. He says, Job, you're a righteous man. You're not perfect. So Job lacked humility. And humility is not saying, hey, I'm, I'm junk. I'm no good. Humility is not thinking of ourselves as if we're no good. Humility is a, a proper awareness of who we are in light of who God is. It's a proper awareness in relationship to God. You ever been to like the Grand Canyon or uh, a mountain range, you've been out to like Colorado or something, or, you, or maybe to the ocean? And in those moments, you stand there and you look and you see the waves crashing in on the shore and you hear the wind or you see the vista and you see the mountains and, and the clouds coming over and you just think how small you are, right? That it's, it's not like, hey, I'm, I'm junk. It's like, no, God is awesome. God is so big. He had the artistry and the power and he just made all of this for us to enjoy. That's what humility does for us. It's a gift. And that's really what the fear of God, the Bible talks a lot about the fear of God. It's like awe. It's like, whoa, he's big, I'm not. Doesn't mean that we, don't have, we have a low self-esteem or that we, uh, but it's a proper awareness of who we are in relationship to God. So that, that's really important for us to, to see. And uh, God will humble the proud, right? He said he would, even if they're righteous, We probably all know some righteous people in our lives, 
some Christians who kind of have it all together, you know, like they check all the boxes and life is squeaky clean. Just because a person is righteous doesn't mean they don't have pride. They're some, some of the most proud people. And so God wants to humble the heart. And he says, I, I need to humble your heart, Job. There's something going on in there. You're innocent. You're a great guy. And you've persevered through trial. But there's a little bit of heart work to do on you yet. So Job responds. Remember, he's still sitting in ashes, still boils, agony, scraping the goo out of his boils. Gross, right? But he's sitting there, and God's questioning him. Brace yourself. Got some questions. And this is how Job responds. Look at what he says in chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I see you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. So Job acknowledges. He says, I, I said some things I didn't know what I was talking about. I did. I'd like to take them back. And then he says in verse 5, I had only heard of you before. Now I've experienced you. So we don't know exactly what all this means, but in some form or fashion, he had a knowledge of God. He knew of God, but he didn't have the experience that he now has with God. And this is important because when, when somebody experiences God, they are changed. For many people, they have faith. They understand, they know some things, but they haven't encountered the living God. And this is what Job experiences in this moment. He's interacting with God. God's speaking to him and he's just like, I'm undone. I don't know what to say. I only heard of you before. Now I've tasted and I've seen we see this happen in other places in the Bible because Job's now a broken and changed man because of God, because of his experience. Just look what Isaiah said. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And it happened to Peter when he experienced Jesus in his power. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And it happened to the centurion when Jesus came to the house. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So before Job had seen God in this way and experienced him in this way, he had esteemed himself too highly. He had pride, right? And he needed humility. And that's what God was bringing out. He's saying, hey, I'm going to ask you some questions. I'm going to reveal some things that you don't know. And Job has a moment where he just wants to take back what he said. You ever done that? You ever just said something and you're like, oh, I just need to bring that back in? And you say something that you regret saying? People that are married, anyone ever said something you regret saying to your spouse? And we do that. We say things that are like, oh, yeah, I didn't know what I was talking about. And that's what Job does. He says, God, I spoke of some things that I didn't know. I'd just like to take them back. And he starts to show humility. Here's the thing, when we start saying things that we want to take back, we usually lack humility in those moments. We're usually speaking from a place of sinfulness or a place of pride or ego, and, and, we, and we're like, we just blah, we just throw it out there, and then we're like, ah, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. 
That's what happens. And that's what Job did. He argued his case. He argued and argued and argued with his friends about his innocence. It says that Job now sits in dust and ashes in repentance. He's repentant. I want to talk about repentance uh, for a minute. Often when we think of repentance, we think of like the kid who threw the ball and broke the lamp. Mom and dad are mad. He feels bad. And so he says he's sorry. And we have, a, we have a, like a mindset, like that's repentance. That's not really what biblical repentance is. Yes, there's emotion tied to it. Yes, there should be remorse when we sin against God. But it's more to do with, hey, I've been going in this direction and I'm sinning. Now I'm going to turn and I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to make a change to go somewhere else. But even that isn't enough. Because there's another layer behind it. Like, why did I sin in the first place? What took me to do that? What, what belief is there that's driving it? Because here's the thing. Um, our behaviors are tied to our beliefs. Like, what we do and how we act is flowing out of what we think to be true or, or not. It doesn't really matter if it's true or not. Um, and Jesus talked about this. Let me back up just a second. It says in Mark chapter 1, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So he says, repent, but then believe. In what? The gospel, the truth. And so when we unpack a lie, we say, okay, I've I've repented, I've turned away from that behavior, but now I need to correct my thinking and, and believe what's true. So beliefs and behaviors are linked. Our behaviors flow from our beliefs, whether true or not. It'd be like saying, well, I have a, um, a job and, and I'm, I'm struggling financially and so I'm going to um, do some things at work where I kind of fudge the numbers or I do something that's illegal or I, to, to get some more money and do something dishonest that's sinful because uh, I don't really trust God. Right? I don't really trust that he's my good and loving father. He's going to take care of my needs. So I take matters into my own hands. So if I say I repent, I'm going to stop doing that illegal stuff. But I'm also going to believe what's true, that God will take care of my financial needs. I don't need to do that. Like I don't need to try to do something that's wrong in order to take care of me because God's got it. See how that works? Um, we have a, a tool that we use called the circle. We use it at, here at Missio a lot. And this talks about what Jesus, you know, was talking about, repent and believe, those two sides of the circle. And I want to do a little exercise with you guys. I think this would be kind of fun this morning. Obviously, Job is not here with us. You know, he's not here. But we're going to do this on behalf of Job as a little exercise. This is going to be a uh, participatory thing, okay? So the circle, we have a kairos moment. That's a moment that says, what caught your attention? So for Job, the moment that caught his attention is probably him sitting in boils and dust and ashes with God speaking to him. Kind of a big moment, right? So that's his kairos moment. He has an opportunity, and it says that he repents. So go around the circle here to the first question. Who is God? What is he like? So according to the story of Job, what do we know about God? What, what is he like? Just throw some things out. Sovereign. Sovereign. Awesome. Absolutely. What else? Forgiving, just. Forgiving, just. Yep. What else? Relational. Relational. I like that one. He allows people to be put to the test. He allows people to be put to the test, so he's in charge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we know this to be true? Go to the next question down. 
How has he shown this to be true? A whole conversation with Satan pretty much encapsulates. Have you seen my servant Job? Yeah, he has a conversation with Satan, proves that he's in charge, that, that Satan, you know. Yeah. What about his resume, right? We just, like, he just said, hey, I made everything. I'm in charge. I do everything. So we know it's true. So for Job, if you go down to the bottom of this circle, what is now true of Job? In light of all that about God, that's true. He's sovereign. He's powerful. He's in charge. He's merciful. He's relational. What's now true of Job? This gets a little bit at his behavior. What was his behavior? He was arguing, right? Arguing about his innocence. What is now true of Job? Is he loved by God? Is he cared for by God? Taken care of? Even though he probably doesn't feel it in the moment? How does he get to live? So he repented, right? I'm sorry, God. I didn't know what I was talking about. I don't want to do that anymore. How does he get to live now on the believe side? Maybe... Uh, Just resting. He doesn't have to argue with his friends anymore. He doesn't have to try to prove himself. He doesn't have to try to say, hey, I'm righteous. He just gets to rest. And that's what he does. He's like, okay, God, uh, no more words. Like, you're good. You got this. See, he was arguing and he was boasting. That's really what his issue was. When we read the last, you can take that down. When we read the last number of verses from the story, you kind of get this fairy tale feeling like, and Job lived happily ever after, right? Like, as you read the last verses of, of the chapter 42, that's kind of the feeling I got. And I, I thought, you know, this is kind of a Paul Harvey, you know, rest of the story. But there's, there's more to it. If you start to really dig into this text a little bit, it, there's still some questions. And I want us to wrestle with this a little bit. But before we do, let's read it. Um, and it's a few verses. So it's Job 42, starting in 7. It says, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliaphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer burnt offerings for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So Eliaphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. In fact, the Lord gave him twice as much as before. Then all his brothers and sisters and former friends came and feasted with him in his home, and they consoled him, and they comforted him because of all the trials the Lord had brought against him. And each of them brought him a gift of money and a gold ring. So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, that's a lot of sheep, 6,000 camels, thousand teams of oxen, and a thousand female donkeys. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. He named his first daughter Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hapuk. And I think this is the first mentioned Karen in the Bible. In the land, sorry, couldn't resist. 
In the land, no woman, women were as lovely as the daughters of Job, and their father put them into his will along with their brothers. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died, an old man who lived a long, full life. And he lived happily ever after, right? Doesn't that just kind of sound like that type of ending? But the story ends with a lot of interesting events. The first thing that God does is he looks to Eliaphaz, the Temanite. Eliaphaz was known. Teman was a city of wisdom. And so Eliaphaz was like the smartest. And God looks at him. He says, okay, Eliaphaz, you're kind of the spokesman here. You and your two friends are wrong. You've been speaking things that are not true about me. And Job was right. So you were actually wrong. He's right. And, and God says, you guys need to offer burnt offerings, sacrifices, and go to Job and ask him to pray for you like, like a priest. Isn't this interesting that Job, no doubt, the public, the people of the community knew Job's story. They had noticed that he'd lost everything, that he's being afflicted. And now God vindicates Job in public. It's like saying, Job's actually a good guy, everybody. And these three friends, they were off the rails and they're going to go sacrifice and Job's going to pray for them and then I'll forgive them. And she shows mercy to the friends. So interesting, right? Now I talked about the fourth friend, Elihu, who is not mentioned here. The three friends, Eliaphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are guilty. Eliaphaz, or Elihu is not mentioned because he didn't do anything wrong in this case. God didn't feel the need to correct him in this moment. And there's a reason for that because what his counsel was to Job really mirrored what God said to Job. See, Elihu was not, his, his correction of Job wasn't so much a, a, an accusation that he's guilty. It's just saying, hey, bro, like Job, I, I know you're going through some hard times. Um, maybe you need to be a little more humble. Like you're, you're kind of braggy right now. Like you're, you're bragging a lot about your innocence. So maybe you need to tone that down a little bit and just trust that God's got this. That was Elihu's counsel to Job. And that's really what God said, wasn't it? He said, yeah, you, you don't have all the answers, Job. Humble yourself and just rest in the fact that you don't have all the answers of what I'm up to. So Job got double of all his stuff, got all these cattle, donkeys, sheep, great, awesome, right? Like he was wealthy before, now he's really wealthy. Uh, and the Bible says that he had 10 more children. So he had another seven sons and three daughters, same as what he had before. And, and we think, wow, that's cool. God gave him his kids back. But, you know, those aren't the same kids. You, you don't think Job had some grief over those first 10 children that he lost and some scars of losing those kids? You don't replace kids, do you? So he had lost those 10 children. God did give him 10 more children, he had the same wife, which she isn't even mentioned here, by the way. I, she was a bit of a peach. And earlier on, she had told him to curse God and die. I just wish I knew what happened with the wife at the end. But evidently, um, she's still in the picture. They had 10, 10 more kids. Um, but God blesses him. and He gives him 140 more years of life. 140 more years. It says four generations. Could you imagine all those great, 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 great grand, grandkids? I don't know if that was enough greats, but there's a lot of greats in there. There's generations, and Job is telling stories. Imagine him just coming up, sitting on the lap, and 
Like my grandpa used to tell me stories, like the same five stories over and over and over, and you just kind of go along with it, you know? Could you imagine just the, the legacy that Job left? He says, he'd be able to tell that story. There was a time when I sat in boils, and it was not a good day. You know, he gets to share that story with all of his grandkids. And it said that he lived a long and full life. Happily ever after. I didn't say that, but it feels like that. So I want to have a little bit of discussion. I want, I want you guys to wrestle with this a little bit. Do you think that Job, let's put this discussion question up. Do you think that Job ever suffered again in the last 140 years of his life? We're speculating a little bit, but what do you think? Do you think he had like smooth sailing for 140 years or do you think he had more trials? Jesus said, in this world there will be trouble. He did say that. There will be, not might be. Job didn't know that though because Jesus hadn't come yet. Right? There will be trouble. Yeah, oh yeah. So, but do you think Job had more trials? I, he had 10 more kids. Yeah, amen. <laughs> this guy's got some wisdom over here. But what impact do you think that this trial, this major trial that Job had been through, how did that shape him? How did that help him deal with the next 140 years of raising 10 kids and grandkids? How do you think that shaped him? What do you guys think? Did it? Do you think he had a different perspective, maybe? Do you think he argued as much? (laughs) Maybe he had a little more humility? I think think it shaped him. I think it it marked him. See, we're going to wrap. Second question. This is a, I want to just probe this out a little bit. So if, if someone were to ask you, why a loving God allows good people to suffer, how would you answer them? Maybe you've been asked this question before, like, why am I suffering? Why am I going through this health struggle? Why am I going through this pain? If someone were to ask you that question, how would you answer it? What's your answer? Just curious. Everyone's getting shy now. How would you answer that question? Say it. Say because you're blessed. Why would a loving God allow people to suffer? Because you're blessed? They might not feel blessed. Yeah, because you're always like, have God beside you. He's always taking care of you. But if someone's, if someone's going through a really hard time and they say, I think God hates me right now. I think God doesn't love me. What do you tell them? That's what I would say. I think the whole footprints. The footprints poem? Yeah, it might help. Suffering it generally brings us either closer to or further away from God. It's really a crucible point of what our relationship with God is going to be like. Sure. Anybody have a kind of a theological perspective? Why does God allow suffering? Why does He allow it? Say it again. To draw us to Himself, to form us. Because really, we, we put God's character on trial when we suffer. We say, well, God must not be loving. He must not be kind. And that's really not true. And so what's the explanation? Well, the, uh, the easy explanation is to say, well, we live in a sinful, broken world, right? Like there's sin exists in the world. The world's busted. It's broken. And so things don't work the way that they're supposed to. We have pain and we have suffering. I want to end with 
just a few truths from, I think we could just pull away from the book of Job. We've hit a lot of this over and over, but I want it to sink in. The first one is this, the first truth. God has an inescapable purpose in whatever he does. God is not random. He's not just, things aren't just happening. He has a purpose behind everything that he does. And this is the, tr- the truth with Job's story. It's beyond our comprehension, oftentimes. And we say, well, I don't know. I was speaking about things I don't know about. And we sometimes have to just acknowledge God's doing something that's bigger and greater than we know. The second truth is this. God can be trusted even when life doesn't make sense. The Bible tells us who God is, that he is loving, he is compassionate, he is kind, and all those things. But then when we start to suffer, we question it. We say, I don't know if that's really true. My experience tells me something else. And then we have kind of a choice to make, don't we? But his his heart is compassionate and merciful. We see that in in the story of Job. Man, it's hard, it's probably hard for Job to feel that in the moment, Check out this verse from James 5. This is kind of neat. It's got a a reference to Job. It says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So that's God's heart. He is compassionate and merciful. He was to Job. He was to the friends who had sinned. He made everything right in the end. That's who God is. And so even if we're struggling here today and we're saying, I'm going through a hard time, things don't make sense in my life, I'm going through this health thing or this relational thing or I just lost my job, it doesn't change who God is. God is the same. And he's bringing us through trials and struggles for his purpose. And he wants us to just trust him. He says, I've got this. Where were you when I spoke everything into being? And we can ask ourselves that question, right? And the third, or the third truth, suffering will be part of this world until Jesus returns. It just is. We know this to be true. We live on the other side of Jesus. Jesus has already been here. Job didn't have that knowledge. He didn't know about Jesus. But we do, and we know he's coming back. Jesus will return. And when he returns, he's going to set everything right. There's going to be no more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more tears. And he will rule and reign and we rest in him. And all that suffering, all that brokenness of a sinful world is finally put to rest. And we know that day is coming, amen? We know that there will be a day when there is no more of this suffering and pain. We don't have to answer the question anymore. Why do people suffer? She kind of hinted at it earlier, but Jesus said, in this world you will have Suffering, you will have trouble, you'll have trial, but take heart, I have what? Overcome the world. Jesus has already overcome the world. We get to rest in him. So I wanna end this morning, I'm gonna pray for us in just a moment, but I just wanna give you guys a chance, just reflect for a moment. Is there anything else from the book of Job that you have learned through this series or that has really just got your attention or maybe stirred your heart? I just wanna give you just a moment to respond Anything, any insights or things you want to share that you've learned from the book of Job? God's always in control, yeah. Even when it seems like chaos. Yeah, it's good. What else? That he's willing to listen 
<laughs> yeah, he's listening to us, willing to listen. Whether we're praising or complaining, he hears it all. Yep, he does. Anything else? In the good and the bad, trust in God. In the good and the bad, trust in God. That could be like the subtitle of Job, right? <laughs> in the good and the bad, just trust in God. So simple, but yet so difficult to do. Suffering's part of our world. We've got to remember we have a spiritual enemy who hates us, who wants to destroy us. We've seen that play out in this story. And, and, you know, we try to make sense of the things that are going on in our world at times. It doesn't make sense. But, man, in the good and the bad, trust in God. He's got you. He loves you. His word tells us it's true. And if your experience tells you something else, you can't go by that, Right? And we see that God works all things together in his time. And the end of the story isn't always the middle. If you were to stop Job right in the middle, pretty bad. But now we know the end. We see the rest of the story, don't we? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you love us, that you care for us, and that you have given us the gift of this story of Job. And Lord, he went through a lot and he suffered deeply. And he was wounded deeply. But God, you restored him and you never left his side. You were always with him and you always drew him to yourself. And so God, thank you that that same reality is true for us, that no matter what we go through in this life, no matter what we face, you are constant, you are in control, you are sovereign, you are powerful, and you are relational. You are loving, you are kind, and and you draw us to yourself. So God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Josh left us with a few takeaways from today's service. God speaks. God silences Job by sharing his resume of creation. God is the moral standard of the world. Job was a righteous man, but not perfect. Humility is not thinking of ourselves as if we were no good. Humility is a proper awareness of who we are in light of who God is. Job responds. Job admits that he said things he would like to take back. Beliefs and behaviors are linked. Our behaviors flow from our beliefs, whether true or not. Happily ever after. Elihu's challenge to Job was to humble himself and be okay with not having the answers for what God was up to. Truth God has an inescapable purpose in whatever he does. God can be trusted even when life does not make sense. Suffering will be part of this world until Jesus returns. Discussion Questions Do you think Job ever suffered again in the last 140 years of his life? What impact did this major trial play in his trust of God? If someone were to ask you why a loving God allows good people to suffer, how would you answer them? Thanks for listening, Missio family, and we'll see you again next week.